0: Amen. Good morning, church. Band, thank you so much for leading us in worship so beautifully. Um, My name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here. I'm the worship pastor, and uh, I will be preaching this morning. As a worship pastor, my job whenever I'm preaching is to be like five minutes shorter than Colton, so that way you're extra happy. Um, But this morning, we will fittingly be talking about worship. We're not starting our new sermon series yet, so today will be a one-off. And we'll be talking about worship and why worship matters and the things that go into play during worship and how the world is vying for our heart's affection and attention and why it's important that we come together and gather on Sunday morning and that what we are doing is true and we are speaking and singing and praying God's truth because that is what matters. So if you would turn to Romans 12 with me says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers of mercies, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing and acceptable, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by a renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, worship, the word worship, this is a word that has taken on many different meanings inside and outside of the church. What, is, what does that word mean to you? Is it simply music? Um, of the, what, the songs that we sing during the service or outside of services, too? Is worship only mean praise? Does it include lament? Does it include all of the acts that happen during a service? Is it confined to services in the church only? Is it something more? Whether we confess that we believe this or not, most of us in the church, and I'm speaking universally, the church universal here, uh, we view worship as the time and the service that leads up to the sermon. This view, when taken in stride with the consumer culture that we find ourselves within, has led to personal preferences for what worship ought to be like. as you can see from Paul's passage to the Romans in Romans 12, there are two very important truths about worship. One, in this passage, there is no mention of singing or music. So worship is not confined to music. And two, worship is a sacrifice. This means that worship is about submission, obedience, and sacrifice, sacrifice. It is not about us, or our preferences. It is about God and God alone. So why does worship matter? Why do we need to talk about this? Where do we begin to talk about worship? Well, it starts in the very, very beginning, Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And this is God's truth. What does that mean? It means we were made in his image and we are to reflect him. Before we get into that a little bit further, I want to I point out in Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. Who is the plural here in God's words? So have uh, you've seen the movie Shrek, You know, it talks about like, you know, ogres have layers, right? You know, but nobody likes ogres. They like parfaits, you know? Um, But Scripture is often like an ogre, that there are layers of truth, right? And there's a core that we're going to get to, but there's also some other layers that help us see the bigger picture and have the nuances and that there's there's more to be seen here than just one aspect. Uh, So there's different... Or oh, sorry, this, this is a better example for my who who hears from the Midwest? Yeah, yeah. So you know, like those seven-layer dips where it's like mayonnaise and potato chips, and then mayonnaise and then like olives, and then mayonnaise, and then like mango. Yeah. So it's scripture is like a really disgusting Minnesotan seven-layer dip. Yeah. Amen. 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 Preach. So we don't have Pam here this morning. So I, I appreciate the amen. Um, so. One of the layers, the, maybe the olives here, we're talking about here, the, the us, is um, we have what's called the royal we. So have you ever heard of the royal we? That God is majestic and just like a king you know, proclaims as we. And so it's just because the singular is just not as well confined. And you see this in the different names for God. So in Genesis 1, we have the word Elohim. And in Genesis 2, you have Yahweh, and there are two different names for God that are focusing on different aspects of God's character and nature. So in Genesis 2 and 3, you have Yahweh, where it's a more of a personified version of God to, to show that God, just like in Genesis 2, is willing to get his hands dirty. God is willing to take his hands and get into the mud and muck and mire of our lives and form and shape something beautiful out of it. Amen. In Genesis 1, we have the word Elohim. And Elohim is is actually in the plural. It's not a singular name. And that's because God's majesty and glory cannot be confined to within the singular. So we kind of have this royal we here. Um, But other people say it's God and the heavenly beings. God existed before time began. And then the heavenly beings were there before we came along. So there's, you know, suffice to say, there could have been some heavenly beings there. But us being on this side of the cross and knowing who God is by revealing himself to the person of Christ, we know that this is Trinity. God, three in one, co-equal, three persons, same substance. And C.S. Lewis, our our disciple home group, uh, we're going through mere Christianity right now. And C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way about the Trinity, that the Trinity is like this eternal divine dance of eternal unending love between God's own triune self. So God is in this eternal, constant outpouring of love between God's own triune self because, as First John says, that God is love. And God, in his outpouring between God's own self, outpours then into creation. Thus we have Genesis 1. And so this creation is an outpouring of God's love. And in him creating us, we're made in the same image. So therefore, I say all that to say we are outpourers. That is what we are made to do we are all worshipers. We were made to worship, and we're always worshiping something. The question becomes, who are we worshiping at any given moment, or what are we worshiping at any given moment? This is why, side note, I I take issue with a quote um, from, I'm not going to say who because you're just going to know who, and then you're going to tune me out the rest of the sermon, but when they say that missions exist because worship doesn't, that's a different view of worship in my personal opinion because worship is always existing because we are made to worship. We are then called to reorient people's wills and where that worship is supposed to go. We can discuss later. I just thought, look. (laughs) But we were made for this. The heart of worship is this outpouring, and that is in itself a sacrifice because you are giving of yourself. Now, Whenever before the fall, Adam and Eve were made in this image and there was no sin, so their outpouring was in the right direction and the right way of lifting up God and of the, the correct relationship there. But in a post-fallen world, our outpouring is corrupted, or as Augustine says in his confessions, our will is corrupted. So often that outpouring is redirected back into ourselves or into everything in the world other than the Lord. And it's not naturally inclined now to be directed to God. We are always worshiping. So, what do we do? How do we reorient properly our outpouring or our worship? Maybe a better question is, especially for those who go to church very often and take part in worship, why is our outpouring not correctly oriented as often as? as it should be. Well, you never heard the phrase, you are what you eat. You are what you love. You are what you worship and outpour into. The root of the issue is threefold. So this is where my Baptist Baptist background comes in. we got three points right here. So one, it's a misunderstanding of liturgy and of worship. And so we'll need to, this morning, redefine and reimagine what we mean by the word liturgy. Two, we are sinners that are saved by grace, living in a fallen world, and surrounded by competing liturgies. Three, we are creatures of habit and the products of the liturgies in our lives, whether they are good and holy or not. So first we need to talk about the word liturgy and what I mean when I say it. The word liturgy can still be a jarring term for many of us folks in the low church is what we call it. That's Protestants who don't wear robes on Sunday morning or have the throne chairs behind us on stage. That's low church. Um, that was not that funny for y'all, I guess. Um, the word is, is often comes across as stale or rigid or lifeless, spiritless, or heaven forbid the word Catholic. Sorry, I didn't want to spook y'all there. But in its true form, it is anything but that. Liturgy The word liturgy, it comes from our Bible. Liturgia is the Greek word, and it's in our Bible, and it means service, ministry, sacrifice, worship. It means exactly the things that ought to mark our lives as disciples and disciple makers. Since the time when the New Testament was being written and compiled, liturgy has taken on different nuances and meanings, though. By the time it got to the Reformers, the church's liturgy was stale, rigid, Lifeless, spiritless, as we typically think of this, because the church's approach to worship became a bottom-up approach, where God is seen as the audience, and the people, and at this time in history was by people, we, the people acting was really just the priest. and they were doing all of the actions and performances. And this is a works-based righteousness approach, which works-based righteousness is no righteousness at all. Amen? So at the core of the heart of the church's worship, this is what was happening. And it's no wonder Luther had no issue finding 99 theses to nail on the wall. But liturgy is so much more than this. Liturgy in its truest form is, and if you're a note taker, this is what you can write down and take with you through the week. Liturgy is this in its truest form. It is a formative, love-shaping ritual. Liturgy is a formative, love-shaping ritual. Martin Luther wrote that whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So if we are what we eat or what we intake, we can say that we are what we worship. And if this is true, we become what we worship because what we worship is what we love. So liturgy is of utmost importance. Liturgy reforms our loves and it retrains and redirects our hearts, since it is a love-shaping formative ritual, redirects our ultimate love and allegiance back to the one who is alone worthy of it. So liturgy matters absolutely, especially since no one can escape liturgy. Liturgies are everywhere, but only a few are holy. The rest are either good but can become unholy or just outright unholy, Either way, they are competing for our love, affection, allegiance, and joy. So, if we are worshipers, all of us, every person, then liturgies are the means by which we orient and discipline our worship. Liturgy is inevitable because we are worshipers by nature. There are different, here's some different examples of liturgies that you might see in the wild. There's, the, there's one that preaches the gospel of materialism and consumerism. So back in the day when malls were a thing, let's go to the mall today. Um, that is a great example. But that, that spirit of the mall is still present. I mean, you can go to the domain. Um, you were, if you were to just go to uh, Target, I know a lot of us not, may not go there, but um, there is this gospel that is being preached as you walk into the temple of sorts. And so you walk into this temple. You are littered with messages that are telling you, you need to be like this. You need to look like this. This will make your life better. If you only do this and you pay this offering, then you become something better than yourself. And you are told, you don't have enough. This will make you feel sufficient. No, not yet. This will make you feel sufficient. You're constantly being pulled in that direction. There's liturgy of sport. This is a good example. So um, uh, Aggies, whoop! um, I am what they call more of a two-percenter. I don't have my ring because when it came to uh, money for it versus a laptop for seminary, I went practical, and I chose a laptop that then died five years later. Um, But if I go to an Aggie football game, you bet your keister, I'm going to feel more like an Aggie. If I come across especially a Texas Tech Raider fan, I am very proud to be an Aggie. Very proud. Not as, well, yeah, more than a Longhorn. If you're a true Aggie, you really don't like the Raiders more than the Longhorns. Am I right? Yep, Yep. that's about right. Yeah. But if I go to an Aggie football game, there's going to be an invocation of sorts. That's going to happen. There's going to be some words spoken at the beginning. There's going to be a national anthem. And then throughout the game, while the action is being played on the field, there's going to be different chants because we have yell leaders. We don't have cheerleaders. We have yell leaders. Amen? Yeah. Let the jokes cons- you know, happen afterwards. You can tease us about it. But we have yell leaders. And we have our chants, which are more like a prayer or a congregational song that brings us together and creates a tighter spirit. And it shapes and forms our behaviors throughout the rest of the game. And this happens throughout the game. And there's the halftime show, which is the greatest band in all of college football, right? Even if you're not an Aggie fan, you have to give us props for that. Amen? (laughs) Pam would have said amen. I'm going to pretend she did. Amen! (laughs) So when I walk away from that football game, I have gone through a liturgy of Aggie football. And I'm going to walk away with feeling more pride and like my blood just became more maroon. That's the liturgy of sport. Military ceremonies. I have a great privilege and honor and joy in serving in the military. And when we have different military ceremonies, there is a very set, structured set of flow within these different ceremonies. And that brings out a stronger spirit core. that brings our unit tighter, brings our battalion tighter. And then with on the company level, it brings, makes us tighter together and shapes and forms our identity i mean basic training is built around this it shapes your whole identity we have many prior serves in here you you guys know um there's also liturgy of status and conformity and trying to have different um styles and and lifestyles Um, magnolia i love magnolia but that's there's very much a liturgy of sorts of how you ought to live and how your house looks, and I love it. It's a great style. but That's another example of things that are good but become bad if that becomes your sole identity. There's also liturgies of false Christian worship. There's experiential liturgies where a church service is centered solely around your experiencing of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing wrong with experiencing God. We are made to experience God, but when things are set up in a way that we try to, as church staff, try to do the work of the Holy Spirit rather than facilitating space for the Holy Spirit to do its own work. That becomes the issue. There are churches that um, they try from very practical things with you know the fog and the lights and everything, but then they'll even have, um, with invitations, paid people come down to elicit more response so that people feel like, oh, they're coming down, I'll come down and respond too. We try to manufacture the works of the Holy Spirit. There's also false Christian worship liturgies that are consumerist and preferential of trying to cater to just what people like and doing it in such a way that it is very pleasing. And this is wrong because it's that's approaching worship as being about us and not about God. There's also performative worship or what we call bottom-up worship like we found in the Reformation, but that's still alive today where we do all of the acting here in order to view God as the audience. But that's works-based righteousness. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Actually, now, here hear my notes say to talk about that now. So holy liturgy is the opposite of bottom-up. It is top-down. And it's filled with sacred moments of the divine at work within God's people, forming them through ancient and fresh continuous practices. Every action is not simply a response to God, but it is a receiving of God's action. We're singing not just in response to God, but in the act of singing, we are receiving his grace and his goodness, which, side note, this is why it's of utmost uh, importance that we sing truth on Sunday mornings. We should not ever be singing, praying, or having any part in our worship services that is not in, is not in congruence with God's word. So we pray as an act of receiving. We sing as an act of receiving rather than only asking for, from the Lord. We read and hear scriptures as receivers. We hear and ingest the proclamation from the preacher as receivers. We take communion as receivers. We are baptized as receivers. The list goes on. This is top-down worship. We receive with faith imparted on us from a merciful God. <clears throat> not receiving so that we're simply fed in the process in the sense that we go to church to be filled up with things and prefer that we are fed over being changed by receiving what God has for us. This is how we also live out 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation, continually being made new because we are receiving from the Lord rather than asking to be just fed and given what we want. So our role, once we begin to see the world through this lens of competing liturgies, is that we are worshipers that need to focus on the true liturgies that point us to the Lord. We need to be able to see the liturgies that are competing and vying for our ultimate allegiance that shape our identities. So I want you to think throughout this week, what are some competing liturgies that are vying for my heart? I give you my own example of Aggie games or military ceremonies. Um, But another sport example for me is uh, the Chicago Cubs. I'm a diehard Cubs fan. And that shapes my behavior and the way I see other people. So when I see a Cardinals hat, I instantly dislike that person. And there's nothing they can do about it except burn that hat. And that's what I would prefer that they would do. Um, Another example for me is performative bottom-up worship. I've been a part of a church church where that was pushed. And let me tell you, it changes your view of yourself, changes your view of the other people in the room, and it changes your view of God. And I say all this, both the Chicago Cubs and bottom-up approach that I was talking about, because the reason why it matters, we talk about liturgy and how it shapes and forms us, because it shapes how we see ourselves, others, and who God is. We have to be careful. So liturgy, as we said before, it's a formative, love-shaping ritual. This means by we are worshipers, we need to orient our worship, and it in turn shapes us into something else, how we view God, how we view others, how we view ourselves. And this is also, God made it this way. He set up this this whole way of liturgy shaping us as a formative, love-shaping ritual because we are creatures of habit. And liturgy habituates us. Uh, some of you know that I grew up playing baseball. Uh, I played for a lot of my life. I played high school, college, a little bit of uh, semi-pro. My my college team was the College World Series. I I I've, I have um, maybe fifteen years experience of coaching uh, private lessons and base and uh, private hitting lessons in baseball. Suffice to say, I'm pretty well versed in the world of baseball. But, and I know that to be able to play and coach at levels that um, require this level of proficiency, it's not just good genes, despite what my dad would say. I cannot count the hours that my dad, in, his, in my life and my brother's life, that he has spent working with us on our swings and our fielding, the number of words of wisdom that he has given me while we watch games on TV. And I can't count, and I... It's amazing that the, the time that he has given to take me and my when I was younger to showcases and, and uh, college camps and uh, pro camps and the money that he spent on private hitting lessons. I mean, there was a lot that went into it, and it was a long, structured routine of practice, practice, practice. But I also can't tell you how many times I would have rather have done something else as a kid growing up in those times. It sounds terrible, but the amount of time put into baseball to get to where I was required me to go beyond what I liked. To become something else, to become better or lesser, requires work, requires sacrifice, and not always doing what you want or like to do. Because it is beyond what you want to do. Another example is I hate running. I, I really, really do. Because distance running growing up in baseball was always punishment. It was never like, oh, let's just go on a fun run. You know, this is cool it was always punishment. If we did running for endurance and, and training, it was always sprints. So distance running is punishment in my eyes and in my heart. And so I can't separate those two. So you can imagine how torturous, torturous it is for me for PT test and getting ready for PT test because I hate running distance. But if I want to stay in shape and regulation, I have to run. I may not like it, but it's not about what I like or what I prefer. I'd much prefer eating pizza and watching something on TV with my wife. Amen. The same is with holy liturgy, with corporate worship. If the purpose and end goal of worship is to become more and more Christ-like, become more holy via sanctification and the work of the Spirit, this will come by not always hand-in-hand with what we prefer or what we like. Because it's not about what we prefer or like. Because it's not about us It's about what's best for us. Submission and sacrifice are required for true worship, just like it is to be a top athlete or skirt on by in your PT test. If we walk away from a Sunday service with the attitude of, that did or didn't feed me, or I did, I didn't like the sermon, I did or didn't like the music, et cetera, et cetera, we're making worship about us, if we're being honest. We're making it about us. And I want to clarify that to say that it's okay to say that certain things didn't connect with our hearts as deeply, but if we're not careful, we can end up sharing an attitude that we should rightly stand against, which if you think back, if you remember this, um, blessings be upon you, uh, it was about 13 years ago, 12 years ago, you've heard of the Osteens, right? Ugh. So Victoria Osteen, she had this viral clip. And it was rightly just dragged through the mud where she said, worship is not about God, it's about us. It's about how we should feel and how it's about us. And she got drug for that, which she should have and should still until she retracts it, which in my knowledge has never retracted that. But we often take on that attitude, whether we realize it or not, we make worship about us and what we like or what we prefer. And that's because it's hard to get away from the liturgy of consumerism. I want to make a clear distinction here, and not gaslight you. There is a difference between recognizing that a certain aspect, method, or action within a worship service does not connect as well with you, versus, this is what I'm speaking against, dismissing that same aspect, method, or action in a service just because it isn't what you prefer. There's a difference. We can dislike something, like... For me, as worship pastor, there I pick songs often that I don't like, because it's not about me at the end of the day. Not everything each week can be true for you and hit you right in the feels type of thing. It's, it's not everything has to be that way. It's okay to dislike something, but it's a different thing altogether to dismiss it if it is not. So let me clarify this in a little further here. So if it's not a theological orthodoxy matter then we need to be careful not to push our own preference over it. The moments in worship that are not our preference can be moments to then, instead, practice self-sacrifice that's required for true worship. And in this posture, we open ourselves up to hearing and seeing God's truth in a new or fresh way. We are also opening ourselves up to loving our neighbor and our brothers and sisters who feel differently than us. Just because it's not connecting with us in that moment doesn't mean it's not connecting with our brothers and sisters. The bluff is this. If truth is being proclaimed and sung with sincerity, it should not be about what we like or don't like at the end of the day. It's not about the style or song selection. Instead, we should check our preferences at the door and come into corporate worship ready to give ourselves, our whole selves, to the Lord together And be ready to receive what he has in store for us together. This is foundational to a healthy community of worshipers. And it begins with preparing our hearts before we even hearken the doors on Sunday morning. Otherwise, we could all just instead pop in earbuds and listen to our favorite songs and listen to our favorite preacher, our favorite podcast. But where in that moment is the sacrifice? Where is the community? Where is the growth together as God's called people that make up Renewal Church? So again, what liturgies are leading your heart as you come to church each week? We need to be aware so that we can fully immerse ourselves in the holy liturgy that says God alone is worthy of our worship. So what now? What do we do with this? First, we're to follow Jesus' teaching to take the plank out of our own eyes. With prayer and accountability, be guided and led by the Spirit. We're to become aware of the competing liturgies in our lives and cling to the holy liturgy that alone makes us holy by God's action alone and his grace alone. Secondly, we need to become liturgists in the sense that we now see the world with eyes opened up to competing liturgies and then, in turn, speak truth and point others towards holy liturgy, sharing the good news that in Christ alone is satisfaction, identity, Worth joy. I pray that we would go forth and be a people that can see the world through this lens. Because competing liturgies, it's ultimately about allegiance and sufficiency. Is Christ alone sufficient for your life? Is Christ alone worthy of your heart's affection? Because the world says that's not the case. So let's go forth and speak that truth into the world and to each other and be aware of what is around us. We are all worshipers. You need to remember every moment, who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? Because that is what's shaping and defining you into who you are. <laughs>